0: The things that we learned about last time, last time we had Sunday school was two weeks ago, hopefully you remember the things we started discussing there about the flood. Let's review a little bit. Why did God send a flood? Right, because of the great wickedness of man. The violence that was in the world, it's emphasized over and over in just Genesis 6. Man's, you may remember the line, man's thoughts were only evil continually. Continually. Only evil continually, and other descriptions such as those. Great, great wickedness. Now, some might say that God's flood judgment, though, was cruel and unfeeling. But why is the opposite actually true? Why could we say that God was not callous at all in the flood judgment? Well, if you remember, Back in Genesis 6, we get a little bit of information about God's emotions, right? He looks on the earth, he sees the great wickedness, and what did he feel? He was sorry that he made man, and he was grieved to his heart. That is not callousness at all. God was actually very emotionally moved because he's so good, because he's so just, because he's so holy. If you are good and kind, evil will deeply trouble you, as it did God, and he's too good and too righteous not to do something about it. Which is why he had to, for the sake of his own goodness, send the flood. Now, why didn't Noah perish in the flood? Yeah, Ron. Can you explain that a little bit more? Because you are correct, because of God's grace. That's exactly right. He was spared from the flood, he and his family, because he was righteous. But his righteousness came through faith, not through any good works that he did. It came through faith, and even that is a gift of God. So you are right, Rob, to say that it was simply God's grace that caused Noah to be spared from the flood. He was believing in God. He was trusting in God to save him through a substitute that would come later. So very good. I want to keep those ideas in mind as we move forward. Here's what we're going to be talking about in today's lesson. We're going to actually spend a good amount of time discussing the first four verses of chapter 6. We kind of skipped over them last time, but they are an enigmatic set of verses. If you know about the first four verses of chapter 6, that's where we get the sons of God mentioned. Who are the sons of God? And why does Moses include that information in the context of the flood? So we'll take some time to talk about that. Then we're actually going to read through the main part of the flood account. We're going to read chapters 7 to 9 in Genesis. Yes, I know that's a little bit of a long section. And we're not going to dig into it deeply, but we are going to pay attention to two things as we read through the flood record. We're going to ask ourselves, what perished in the flood? What exactly died in the flood? And what exactly survived? And as we do so, we're going to also be paying attention to the timeline of the flood. Can we say with surety when certain things happen during the flood? And then finally, Lord willing, we'll have time. If we have time, we'll talk about some application questions. What does God's word look like in the real world, especially when it comes to these issues? Let's ask God's blessing on this time of teaching. Well, Lord God, Lord, your word is great. You are great. You are worthy of worship. Lord, we are awed by you, and we love you. Lord, show us more of yourself, more of your goodness, as we study your profitable word. Give me the ability to explain it. Help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you haven't done so, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 6. Let's start by looking at those first four verses. If you're using the workbooks... You can open to page 17, follow along there as we go through today's lesson. But we're in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, and recall that right before this chapter, chapter 5, we have genealogical information. We have the line linking Adam to Noah. It's good to have that context in mind. Now follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were their mighty men who were of old, Men of Renown. Okay, did that section of scripture seem strange to you? What is Moses talking about exactly? And what does it have to do with the flood? There's been much debate and speculation in recent times as to what these verses are really saying. it's definitely not the easiest section of scripture to interpret, but let's see if we can progress in our understanding of it. I would say, and hopefully I'll demonstrate, that some parts of this are actually very clear. Notice the word men in verse 1. The word men can have two different meanings. It can refer to adult male humans, or it can refer to what? Yeah, mankind, humanity, exactly, all people. Now, which sense is meant in verse 1? Yeah, it's got to be mankind, because you have multiplication. You can't multiply with just males. You need both men and women to multiply. And so we're talking about men in the sense of mankind, when mankind, when humanity was multiplying across the face of the land. In case you're wondering, the word for men here in the Hebrew is the word adam in Hebrew, which just means man or human. Note also, just to reinforce this idea that this is referring to mankind, there are no contextual indicators that this is a specific group of people, like perhaps the genealogical line from the previous chapter. We don't see a definite article like the when the men begin to multiply the face in the earth, or a modifying phrase like the men of Cain, or men descendant from Seth. We don't get those indicators. And without them, grammatically, we must take men in the sense of all people. Humanity. Okay, this is important, because that same word appears again in verse 2, in the phrase, the daughters of men. Now, because men in verse 1 refers to all people, if you are one of the daughters of men... And what group of people does that put you? Yeah, you're still part of humanity. We're simply just, you're still in the group of humanity. If you're a daughter of a man, or if you're a daughter of men, you are a female human. Or in this context, you're an unmarried female human. Because these daughters are taken as wives. Now this should help us identify the sons of God. If Moses, the writer of this book, has to include of humans, or of men, while talking about who the sons of God find beautiful, they think the daughters of humans are beautiful, then that implies that the sons of God are what? They are not. They're not human. If they find the daughters of humans beautiful, then that implies that the sons of God are themselves not human. Because you have to make that distinction. Now, what about this phrase, sons of God? Does it Can it refer to people who are not human? Well, certainly in the New Testament, we do see the sons of God applied to humans. Christians are referred to as sons of God. And in the Old Testament, there are some similar phrases. At least one time, the uh, righteous Hebrews are referred to as sons of the Most High. So, sons of God can refer to actual humans, but it doesn't always necessarily. And we need to let the context of the book help us determine what, what this phrase actually means. And hopefully, you're seeing, based on the grammar here, the sense that Moses has in mind with this phrase is not of people. It is of something different than humans, though the sons of God take a fancy to human females. So, if they're not human, what are they? Well, the only other possibility of a sentient Beauty appreciating creature would be angels. Be angels. And that's what I'm going to argue today. That these sons of God are angels. This fits actually with several other sections of the Bible. The phrase sons of God does, is used in the same way in the book of Job, as many of you know. Which is perhaps the earliest book of the Bible and probably the closest in time to the writing of the Pentateuch, where we have the sons of God phrase being used. In Job, the sons of God are there singing at the creation of the world, so they cannot be men. Men were not created until the very end of creation. So, the sons of God there must be angels. It's the same thing here. Also, there are some New Testament references that correlate well with this interpretation. Actually turn, let's go and look at these. Go to 1 Peter. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 3. There are three references in the New Testament that are commonly linked to these first four verses of Genesis 6. I'd like to show you two of them now, and then one of them later. So go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll look at verses 18 to 20. So he's talking about, Peter's talking about Jesus, talking about his death and resurrection. Now let's look at verse 18 in chapter 3. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. We'll stop there. Now, these verses tell us something interesting about some spirits. Not all spirits are active. Not all angels are active. There's a group of spirits that's not gallivanting about, not trying to oppose God and disrupt men, because they are imprisoned. And they are imprisoned, this text tells us, for disobedience. When were they disobedient, according to Peter? In the days of Noah, right? When the patience of God kept waiting during the construction of the ark. So you have a group of spirits imprisoned for disobedience in the days of Noah. That fits very well with the interpretation of the sons of God being angels, or spirits, in Genesis 6. They would be the disobedient spirits from the time of Noah. Let's look over, actually, at the next letter... Second Peter also says something about this. Look at Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 4. We'll read down to around verse 10. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives hereafter and if he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men skip down a little bit then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Okay. So here notice We're talking about angels, similar to the way that the spirits were discussed in the previous letter. These angels here are cast into pits of darkness when they sinned, which is another way to describe a kind of imprisonment. And we can also notice a chronological progression. First, you have the angels sinning. Then you have Noah and the flood. Then you have Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. A simple chronology, the sinning angels come before the flood. And that would fit with the sons of God being angels in Genesis 6. But You may be saying to yourself, wait a second, how can an angel marry a human? That's impossible. They're spirits, they can't procreate physically, and Jesus says angels don't marry. And how could their descendants be saved by Jesus if the father isn't a human and he's not in the line of Adam? There's all sorts of problems with this. Well, hold, hold on just a second. There are some, those are some fair objections, but... I'd like to present to you a a summary of how these verses in Genesis 6 fit together. And hopefully that will address some of the different objections you might be thinking. But before I do that, let's make a few more observations back in Genesis 6. So turn back over there. Okay. Four observations. You see the phrase in verse 2, took wives for themselves. It's important for us to note that took need not refer to some forcible kind of obtaining. We might think of taking a wife in, in that sense, but that's not the way the Hebrews use the term. To take a wife is actually a common expression in the Old Testament. And it just refers to a normal, voluntary marriage transaction. You have the patriarchs taking wives for themselves, and you have their descendants taking wives for themselves. They were not kidnapping, and they were not raping. This is just Normal marriage. That's important for us to know. Also note verse 3. God says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he is also flesh. What is God expressing by saying this? If we were to characterize him emotionally, what is he expressing? Yeah, there's some kind of displeasure here, right? Right? There's, he's, there's a connection to what's happening in the context and this statement of displeasure. My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he's also flesh. My Holy Spirit, it's not going to keep trying to bring men back to repentance. It's not going to keep being patient with man, because he's he's wicked. So it's an expression of displeasure. But notice to whom it is directed. Even though I've mentioned to you that the sons of God are angels, it is not directed toward angels. I'm not gonna, It doesn't say, my spirit will not strive with these sons of God forever. It says, I will not strive with man forever. That's strange. But it's important. Next, verse 4. Note the word Nephilim. Now, this word might be translated as giants in your Bible. It's translated that way in the King James. But The meaning of the word is actually unclear. Some have argued that the word comes from the Hebrew verb, meaning to fall. Possibly that indicating that these people are the kind that fall on you, or they get the ones that cause others to fall, like some kind of giant. Others have argued, however, that there actually is no linguistic connection between the Hebrew verb and this word, Nephilim. We don't really know where it comes from. Regardless, from the end of verse 4, and from the other places that we see the word Nephilim, it is clear that this word refers to some kind of fearsome person, some kind of mighty warrior, be a giant, but certainly some kind of mighty person, mighty kind of person. One other thing, also in verse 4. In verse 4, we have two points of time mentioned we have in those days, and we have afterward. Now, the time period designated as afterward refers to the time after which event takes place. Um, it's interesting that you say the flood. I don't think the flood is what we're looking for here. There's something else that we can more, I think, that we can better point to. Because the flood has not yet been mentioned. Yes, Steve? Exactly. Grammatically, what what makes sense, even though the grammar is a little weird in that that verse 4, right after it says afterward, it says, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. So, seems to make sense that the afterward refers after that event took place so that means in those days refers to what time so if the afterward is after the sons of God take these wives and go into them what is the in those days it must be the time period before that right because afterward after that event takes place, in those days must be the time period before that. The time period referred to in verse 1, when men was multiplying on the face of the earth. That's important as well. Because this means that the Nephilim, let's, let's see if you're tracking with me, the Nephilim existed before or after the angels took human wives? They existed before and after, but they existed before. So, Could the Nephilim be the supernatural products of angelic and human unions? No, they couldn't, right? Because the Nephilim were already on the earth. That's also important. If there were any Nephilim born of such unions, it would have been purely coincidence, because Nephilim were already on the earth. All right, so what's this all getting at? How can we tie this together? I'd like to give you a, a summary view. And this is going to be very similar to what John MacArthur presents in his sermon on this passage. And just as a side note, let me tell you that I'm very confident that the sons of God are angels. In Genesis 6, I think grammatically that's the only place that you, that you can be led. But the following explanation of how that understanding fits with the rest of the passage admittedly features some speculation. So I'm not, I don't want to be too dogmatic about the interpretation I'm about to present. But I do think it fits well with the information presented in this passage. Here it is. What's really going on here? Well, after the fall, man is becoming more and more corrupt, but he still cannot escape death. He's in rebellion against God, and yet he still wants to escape death. And his world is becoming more and more violent. Meanwhile, certain angels begin to lust after human women. These angels know that they cannot have these women as, as wives Unless the angels possess human men and have those women accept the possessed men as husbands. Because it's true, angels are spirit. How could they, how could they have wives? They have to have, they have to possess a human man. Now using these possessed men, these angels communicate to these human women the angels' true identities and they make proposals of marriage. What happens? The women accept. None of the women that they approach refuse. The angels have, whomever they wish, for wives. Now, how is it that the angels are able to persuade these women? We don't know. Perhaps it was merely the the thrilling prospect of such a deviant union. Or perhaps it was a temptation similar to the satanic temptation in the garden. A false message of salvation that would appeal to these women's fleshly desires. Something like the following. If you marry me, an angel, you will not die. You will become powerful. You will raise up superpowered children. You will rule over your enemies. You will gain all the kingdoms of the world. You will gain great wisdom. You will transcend. You will become like God. Perhaps these angels even claim to be speaking for God himself, saying something like, this is the way of salvation that God has provided. Marry me. Have children with me. You can see a little bit more why I, say, why I say that in just a second. These women, despising the true God and trusting the word of devils, they submit to the arrangement. These human daughters voluntarily marry rebellious angels through possessed men and bear them children. Now, why do I say voluntarily? Because, remember, verse 3 puts the blame, puts the responsibility on man. It says, my spirit will not always strive with man. And that word also for a normal marriage transaction is used in verse 2. But what about verses 3 and 4? Well, the sad part is, from this arrangement, the daughters of men, they really get nothing. They were deceived. They get nothing but judgment out of this. And this is always the way it is with sin, with Satan and the demons. They get what they want out of you, and they leave you with nothing but ruin and emptiness. God reminds in verse 3, right, with his little expression of displeasure, man is also flesh. Or it also can be translated, man is but flesh. He's only flesh. Even married to an angel, a human remains just as much a human. He's doomed to die as he was before. An angelic marriage changes nothing. Moreover, the progeny of these, un- these unions turned out to be normal, human, just like every other human. I imagine Moses explaining to his original audience, Don't be deceived, O oh Israelites. The mighty men, the giants you see, the Nephilim, they're not demigods. They're not the products of, they're not the supernatural products of angelic and human cohabitation. Such mighty men existed before angels came into human daughters. These unions did not produce any kind of offspring different than what came before. Some may have turned out to be mighty, but it was not the result of angelic power. There were indeed mighty men in the old times, just as there are in some places today. But these mighty men are not supernaturally gifted. They, too, are human. They're but flesh. They're just men. So why would this be important for the Israelites? What would it have to do with the flood? Why mention this Moses? Well, first of all, I'll give you a couple of reasons. First of all, it's an example of the height of human rebellion. Genesis 6 is setting the stage for why the flood happens, right? We're going to hear about the violence. We're going to hear about the wickedness. And this is just another huge example of that. Men, through these daughters, would rather turn to demons, declaring false gospels, than repent and turn to their kind God. Moreover, I think the Israelites would have recognized that this is an example of extreme sexual perversion. That might not be apparent to us at first, but let's think about it. God ordained the sexual relationship to be only between one man and one woman in marriage. He pronounced as abominable any other kind of arrangement. Men with men, women with women, humans with animals. Man was only to marry and have sexual relations according to the good boundaries set by God, with his own kind and with someone of the opposite gender. But man, through these wicked women, was flaunting the violation of those boundaries, seeking marriage and sexual relations with angels, just as these angels were seeking with the women. Genesis does not record the judgment of these angels. It doesn't seem to be as concerned with the angels as it is with men. We don't hear about the the angels' creation either. But it's no wonder, in light of such a perversion, that God immediately imprisons these angels forever. As we hear about in the New Testament. It was a flagrant marriage perversion. And the Israelites, I think, would have seen that. They were not marrying within their own kind. Yet even here, God demonstrates grace. He says, I will not always strive with man, yet his years shall, or he shall, let me quote it exactly, his days shall be 120 years. What's that referring to? Well, it's not their age. He's not saying they're going to live for 120 years. Uh, That's going to be their new lifespan. No, there are different reasons that can't work. Instead, it's a a proclamation of how much time is going to happen between, or how much time is going to go by between that proclamation and the flood. I'm going to give them 120 more years. I'm going to give them time to repent. They still will have time. God is pronouncing this right when he's telling Noah to build the ark. One more thing, and then I'll open for a little bit of questions. Why else is this significant? This whole thing with the sons of God, these angels going into the daughters of men. It's because here we see a prototype of something that has plagued God's people throughout their entire existence. What is that plague? Greedy, sensuous, false gospel declarers. We see the prototype of the false teacher here. And why do I say this? Because of that third biblical reference that we haven't looked at the New Testament. I want to show it to you now. Turn to the book of Jude book of Jude, right next to Revelation. Remember, Jude is that one of those books that's so small it only has one chapter. Let's look at verses. We're going to look at verses 3 to 8, but first, let's just look at verses 5 to 8 because this is another section that helps us understand that the sons of God are angels. Because listen to what it says starting in verse 5. Now I desire to remind you though you know all things, once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels, who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds, under darkness, for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. I'll actually stop right there. There's a really interesting relationship, you may have noticed, between verse 6 and 7. It mentions the angels, and then in verse 7, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. That's in the context of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, who are the these of verse 7? It would be the angels. They would be the ones who indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. They went after those who were not of their own kind. They went after humans. And that's exactly like what Sodom did. They went outside the boundaries that God had, sent for, that God had set for marriage. But why does Jude mention all of this? Now let's look at verses 3, 4, and 8. What is Jude actually talking about? He mentions these things in the Old Testament as parallels to what present situation? Exactly. Apostate teachers, false teachers. You can look up in verse 3, or verse 4. For certain peoples have, have crept in unnoticed, those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 8. Right after he discusses Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. And the rest of the passage, or much of the passage, is just going to be vindictives against these false teachers and how evil they are. You know what's really interesting? Turn back just a little bit to 2 Peter. Remember that reference we read earlier that, had, that referred to the angels? Well, look at the context there second Peter chapter 2 verse 4 look a couple of verses above what is Peter actually talking about here false prophets right false teachers and what is characterizing them um, I'll start in verse 1 but false prophets also arose arose among the people just as there will be also false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing swift destruction upon themselves Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false works. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. I think this is really striking. This is really poignant. Peter and Jude bring up this episode in Genesis 6, as parallel to what is happening in the church with these false teachers, these sensuous and greedy teachers. And I think it shows us a very, very important principle. False teachers never have the good of their followers in mind. They are only trying to exploit them. And how are they trying to do that? Often it's going to be in two ways, in immorality and in greed, a want for money. False teachers are thoroughly perverse. They do not care at all for their followers. They try to use them to satisfy their own covetousness and lust. And is it not the exactly, is that not the exact same thing that these angels were doing in Genesis 6? They looked upon the daughters of men, not because they actually loved them, not because they actually wanted to do them good. They only cared about fulfilling their own lusts. And is that not the way it is with all demons? Is it not the way it is with Satan? Demons never have our good in mind. Despite what Satan was telling Eve in the garden, he didn't really care for her. And neither do false teachers. They scratch our itching ears. They seem like they give us what we want, but they're actually just trying to use us and abuse us for their own ends. It's no wonder that Jesus and the apostles save their harshest condemnations for false teachers and declarers of a different gospel. Because they know them to be thoroughly perverse, exploiters of those who follow them. And we could generalize, generalize this to all sin, can't we? All sin seems to offer us something good, something that will really benefit us, but it never does. It only seeks to rule us, ruin us, and destroy us. I'm reminded also of how God speaks to Israel in the Old Testament and of, some of the latter prophets. God rebukes Israel for going after her lovers. And one of the things that he says, I'll just paraphrase a little bit, he tells her, these lovers, they don't really love you. You keep seeking after them, but they they don't love you. They're just using you. When your nakedness is exposed, they will not come to protect you. They'll be the ones exposing your nakedness to everyone. They'll be the ones shaming you in front of all. Will you not return to the husband who actually loves you? Who actually is generous towards you? Who always delights to give you the very best? Who gives you his whole self to enjoy? God says that to Israel. So, in Genesis 6, and in light of the the verses that explain it in in the New Testament, we see the radical generosity of God contrasted with the abusive self-seeking of demons, Satan, and false teachers. In light of this, we cannot treat sin or false teachers or false teaching lightly. We know that it's actually all part of ruining and exploiting people. Nor should we take the sweet compassion of God for granted. Because God is showing us his generous kindness to us in so many different ways. And that's all I mainly wanted to say about this passage. But if you'd like to hear more, if you're like, I I would like to hear more support for this, I recommend checking out John MacArthur's sermon on this passage. You can find it at gty.org. It's entitled, Demonic Invasion. And you can uh, find out more there. He does a good job, I think, treating through this passage. A difficult passage, but I think there are definitely certain things that we can be clear about. But let me pause for a moment. Questions? Yeah, Magda. I think so. Yeah. I mean, some people object and say, "Well, sons of God can't refer to fallen angels," but I think it's not necessary necessary for us to make that distinction. Certainly, these are rebellious angels. They are angels, but they have they've chosen to go outside God's boundaries, and uh, so yeah, it would be right for us to also call them fallen angels or demons. That's a really good question, Joe. Was this a forcible, these men that they possessed, these angels, was it forcible or was it voluntary from these men? We don't really know. Um, It could have been voluntary. Um, We certainly know that demons have the ability to possess people because they're doing that in the New Testament. Uh, Those who don't belong to God, those who have rejected God. So it could have been either. Other questions? A really interesting passage. And I think uh, it was meant to profit the people of Israel. It was meant to do some explaining for the people of Israel in light of the flood. And it's also meant to profit us. Well, let's move on from that. If you have more questions or comments about that, you can uh, see me afterwards. Or do you want to say something, Craig? Back in Genesis? Yeah, that's a really good question. Why the also there? Is, is God referring to a other flesh besides man? Well, if you actually look at the Hebrew word, it is not always translated also. It can also be translated but, in the, or only. So I am not a Hebrew scholar, so I can't tell you why, why they've chosen to translate it also in, in, um, in our translations. But certainly, it would not be inconsistent for the idea to say that he is only flesh. He is, at his at his core, he's just flesh. He's just flesh. Or, if it is in the sense of also, it would simply be that, in the context of these unions, the people who are resulting from that, and the people who are seeking these unions, they're still human too. They are also flesh. So, either one of those ways would be the way to make it fit. Verses 3 and 4 are kind of difficult to, to fit with an interpretation, but I think because the sons of God must be angels, then I'm looking for the best way to make that fit with those two verses. Yes, Steve? Yeah. Okay, that's a good question, Steve. Is this happening over a period of time? Does this happen continually, or was this something just isolated to a certain period of time? I think that because of that New Testament text that we referred to earlier where it says that the spirits that were disobedient in the days of Noah, this particular disobedience, these angels who were part of it, they were dealt with. This wasn't something that continued to happen. God just said, okay, more angels are trying to go into the daughters of men. i got to deal with them too. This is something that was unique to the period of time in the days of Noah before the flood came. And uh, this perversion happened, and then God dealt with those angels and apparently has not happened since. Now certainly, demonic possession continued to happen, and I think you can still say it is still happening. Though it's not as visible today as it was in the time of Christ when all the demons were going crazy when he was around. But certainly, this kind of marriage perversion, that was, that was only that one period of time. That's what I would say. If you have more questions, bring them up to me afterwards, we're gonna move on, but, Again, I think that what's really interesting from that passage is that the New Testament parallels to the false teachers that they're saying these were their, these are prototypes, prototypes of the evil that we see in false teaching. But let's turn now to the rest of the flood account. We're now going to read through those chapters, the the main chapters of the flood, verses, or chapters seven to nine. But as we do, I want you to pay attention to two different things, as I mentioned earlier. First, you should have received a handout for today's class that says the flood timeline from Genesis. If you didn't get one, make sure you Ask um, George in the back, or let George in the back know. He'll bring one to you. Pull that out for a moment. You'll notice that the sheet records the timing of the different events in the flood and then gives a verse reference for each one of those details. And the numbers down the center of the page, they indicate days. So the flood starts on the 17th day of the second month. Manoah is 600 years old, so that's day zero near the top. It's the first day of the flood, day zero. So... And then it, it goes down from there as the days progress. So as you listen to the reading of the flood account, pay attention to the time indicators. See, where do these things really come from in the text? Do we get these details? Can we be confident that this is, this is when these things happened? Pay attention to the time details as we read through. And by the way, please hold on to this sheet because you'll need it for the next couple Sunday school lessons. So don't lose it. But pay attention to the time as we read, and then also pay attention to the descriptions of what would die in the flood and what would survive. And if you can, even note places in the text where we get clear descriptions of that, because I'm going to ask you about it afterwards. Okay, let's start the reading. Starting in verse 1, chapter 7, going to verse 20 of chapter 9. It's going to take a little bit of time, maybe about 10 minutes, but follow along with me. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me in this time. You shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean, two, a male and his female. Also of the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. Noah did, according to all that the Lord had commanded him. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the waters of the flood. Because of the water of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds and everything that creeps on the ground, there went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They, and every beast after its kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and after every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased. And lifted up the ark, so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed, and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere, all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. The waters prevailed fifteen cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. All flesh that moved on the earth perished birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. Of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils were the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth. And only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark the water prevailed upon the earth one hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed and the rain from the sky was restrained. And the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of one hundred and fifty days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, On the seventeenth day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about, at the end of forty days, that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. And he sent out a raven. And it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him in the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So no one knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, but she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month. On the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may breed abundantly on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by their families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. and The Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat, and summer and winter, all day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all fish of the sea, Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you, as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely I will require your life blood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, and from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you. Be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you. Of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the whole earth was populated. Well, actually stop right there. Ah, okay. Wow. I've got to get through my pages and my notes. They're good to read the whole flood account together like that, or most of the flood account. We won't be rereading such large sections in the upcoming lessons, but did you notice? Did you notice the time indicators in the text? Because there are a lot of them, right? We can indeed establish a specific timeline for the flood. The flood began with rain and the opening of the fountains of the deep, the great fountains of the deep. It rained for 40 days, but the waters continued to rise for 150 days, 150 days total. And that's when the waters begin to recede. because It says after 150 days, the waters decreased. On day 224, that number is computed by the, the month indicators given, the mountains are visible. By day 314, the surface of the earth is dry, but Moses doesn't leave the ark. Why do you think that is? Okay, we certainly have that detail from the text that he doesn't leave until God says to leave. But why might it have been, this is a little bit of speculation, why might it have been wise for him not to leave the ark? Yeah, Rob. Okay, that's certainly true. It gives the uh, the Earth a little bit more time to um, rejuvenate, especially when it comes to the plants on the Earth. But there, there's. It's funny that it says the surface of the Earth was dry, in three hundred and uh, day three fourteen, but then later on it says the Earth was dry. So there was something else that still dried even after Moses saw that the surface of the ground was dry. So what might have been the reason for keeping Mo, Mo, not Moses, Noah in the ark? I'm thinking it's probably for safety. Because the whole earth, in the deeper portions, it wasn't totally dry. And so it may have been that if they had left the ark, that the ground may have given way in certain places. Because underneath, it was still wet. It was still not completely settled and dry. Yeah, That could be the reason. But certainly, he, Moses... Noah was looking for God's direction as to when to leave the ark. But all those different time details, what do they indicate to us about the kind of text that we're reading? That's consistent with a historical text, right? Something presented as historical narrative. Tons of details about when specific things happened, even to the day. And even at one point when it talks about the dove coming in, it says at evening. Why on earth would you include those details if you were not trying to make the person that you're speaking to understand it as real history? Now our other question. What perished in the flood? Is it clear from the text? Where do you think is one of those places that we can point to? Yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, that's probably the most explicit section, right? It's like the narrative breaks for a moment just to make sure you understand what was destroyed. In verse 21, all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind. And then it says it again in verses 22 and 23 in different ways. We understand that this is all land creatures, all land animals, and all men. And the sea creatures they were they were able to survive or many of them were able to survive but the land creatures they were all destroyed and it's not just there verse 7 or chapter 7 verse 5 says the same thing uh, chapter 9 verse 11 chapter 9 verse 15 chapter 9 verse 19 they all indicate a total destruction of all land creatures and then in chapter 6 we see the same thing it's not like the narrative leaves us guessing as to what really was destroyed or what really survived what's the only thing that survived the sea creatures, right, and the the creatures that were with Noah on the ark. And the end of verse uh, 23 makes that really clear. Only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. So of all that perishing group, the land creatures, only Noah, his family, and the creatures with him were spared. And this is confirmed by the New Testament. Some of those same passages that we read earlier. 1 Peter 3.20 says eight persons survived the flood because they were on the ark. 1 Peter 2.5, God did not spare the ancient world, the whole ancient world. He judged it, except for the eight people who were on the ark. And then Hebrews 11.7, Noah condemned the world, built the ark, and saved only his household. We're talking about men who survived. It was just those with Noah. Now, we'll talk more next week about whether the flood was global. But hopefully you are appreciating the fact even this week, or this following truth. If you say the flood was local, or that other animals or people besides Noah and what were with him survived the flood, you must admit you do not get those ideas from the biblical text. Because the text does not lead you at all in that direction. It leads you to believe that God totally destroyed all land creatures and all men. Let's finish today by looking at a few of the application questions from the workbook. If you have those workbooks, you can turn to page 18. If you don't, then you can just look at the projector slide And I'll put the questions up there. We can move through these probably somewhat quickly. Question one. How would you use the text of this passage to respond to someone who thought this account was just a mythical story about a man and a boat? Yeah, great. That's right. Show them the actual passage. Many people who would just dismiss it. Oh, yeah. Moses knew he was writing a myth. Well, show them the passage, the level of detail. actually shows that he presents it as history. So if you say that it is still a myth, you must admit that Noah, Moses, presents it as history. And if Moses knew it was a myth and presented it as history, then he's deceptive. And so is God. So we would like to point them to the actual passage. Number two, many people have a, that's kind of a funny question, many people have a Noah's Ark theme for their nursery or children's play area. What is the real message of the flood, and is that really fitting for a nursery? What is the real message of the flood? That's right. It's about God's judgment on sin, right? If we really think about it, the flood is a super serious event. It's about cataclysmic judgment for intolerable wickedness and gracious salvation for only a few. Now, this isn't to say that you can't use an ark in your nursery or that you must immediately burn all cute pictures you have of the flood. But it does mean that you should never lose sight and never let your children lose sight of what the flood is really about. We don't want to lose sight of that. Number three, what can we learn about God's character by comparing the salvation of the ark and the salvation in Christ? And before we answer this question, I I do want to say this. You may have heard people talk about how Christ is our ark, he is the one who brings us through the flood of God's judgment. He's the one that preserves us just as the ark did. And the ark is a useful metaphor for describing the gospel. We should be cautious however about trying to make the ark or even Noah types of Jesus. Because we might start over-interpreting the details of Genesis to force them to conform to different gospel truths. We might say, well there is one door of the ark and there's, there's only one way in Christ. And there. What about the window of the ark? There's only one window of the ark. What does that mean? We might start over-interpreting. That being said, there are consistent principles, gospel principles, between the ark and Jesus. And there are consistent truths about the character of God evident from the salvation provided by the ark and the salvation that comes through Jesus. What are some of those consistencies? Consistent gospel principles or consistent truths about God's character. Yeah, Francisco. Yeah, that's a great that's a great point. God gives people time to repent. He did that with the flood, very specifically, even giving them 120 years, and He certainly does that with everyone who comes to the gospel in Christ. Yeah, Magda. That's right. God provides a way of salvation. He is merciful. He demonstrates his mercy by providing a way of salvation. Yes, Wayne. Very good, right? We see that consistency as well. God's means of salvation is the only means of salvation. It is exclusive. The ark was the only way to be saved during the flood. Jesus is the only way to be saved um, in the gospel. Are you going to say something else, Eric? Okay. Anything else? There's also the obvious that God judges sin, right? God will judge sin. God has judges judged sin. He is holy. He will, he will bring us to account for all our sins. And we can also note that God's way of salvation is not presented forever. He does give time to repent, but eventually that time is cut off. With the flood, God closed the door. And with the gospel, eventually we die and we face the judgment. There's not forever opportunities to repent. So there are definitely consistencies between the ark and salvation in Christ. Number four, how should we approach God knowing that he is holy and will judge mankind for its sinfulness? Well, we're running out of time, so I'll answer this one myself. Basically, there are two different ways. It depends on where we are. If we belong to God and we're demonstrating fruits of obedience, God's holiness and the fact that he judges mankind for its sinfulness, it should cause us to approach him with awe and joy. Because we see this is a powerful and good God. And he's my God. I'm not going to suffer under his judgment. Because my judgment has been taken care of by Christ. I'm instead only going to receive his generosity. But he is a powerful and holy God. I'm so thankful that he's determined to do me good. We belong to Christ. We can approach God with joy and awe. But if we don't, and if we are living in sin, we must approach with fear and trembling we must approach humbling ourselves before God because he is a consuming fire. We have nothing with which to entreat his pardon except his own kind character and the work of Christ. Last question. This is just for you to ponder on your own. We see Noah as an example of faith and obedience in the face of many unknowns. What unknowns are you facing in your life? And how can you walk in obedience to God through those unknowns? And what can you expect from God as you do that? We know the New Testament says that these records of the Old Testament were given for our instruction. Noah is really interesting. He's sobering and encouraging because he spends 120 years building an ark that no one else said, or building an ark for the flood that no one else said was coming, and he preached and pleaded with people and had zero converts. That's sobering reminds us that we will have difficulties in being obedient to God and we're going to, or usually, many times, going to have to wait. we be put in situations where we wait. We're just waiting for God to fulfill his promises. But we need to arm ourselves for that. We need to be ready for that. We need to be sober. But God is faithful. God does keep his promises. He kept his promises to Noah, not only to bring a flood, but also to preserve Noah. And he always keeps his promises with us, even though it involves trials and lots of waiting. That's it for today. Next week we're going to be talking about was the flood go- was the flood global? Let's just recite our memory verse, and then we'll pray. We read this uh, verse earlier, but we'll read it again. Second Peter 2 Peter 2.5. Read with me, please. God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Thank you. Let's pray. Actually, before we pray, I don't want to forget family devotionals. I still have about seven of those. If you haven't picked yours up yet, please see me immediately afterwards. Thank you. Now let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are great, that you are not like these apostate angels or false teachers that simply want to exploit us for your own ends. Lord, you are good. You are so good. And it's so amazing that when you bring glory to yourself, you do us the greatest good. You are being so generous to be faithful to your own glory. Lord, thank you. Thank you for inviting us and bringing us in to that place where we can enjoy your glory. Lord, show us more of your glory. Lord, instruct us with the flood accounts and with the other scriptures that we learn and we hear today so we can love you more, so we can enjoy you more, so we can be more obedient. Amen.